Hello Planet A listeners. In today's episode we've gathered some of the most inspiring insights from some of the guests I've had the privilege to talk to in the last couple of months, including Nicholas Stern, John Kerry, Jeffrey Sachs and Jane Goodall. Yes, I know that we have this window of time. Um, I don't know how big the window is, and it is closing. We have capacity to do an enormous amount, and there are countless things we can do. That's a major transformation. Don't delay on that. Get in front of it, because it's going to have its own economic rewards. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jonsson. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers, and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Few people played as decisive a role in the creation of the Paris Agreement as today's guest. Christiana Figueroa served as Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and was one of the architects behind the Paris Agreement. Today I talked to her about the importance of the agreement and what we can learn moving ahead. People were arguing it's too expensive, it's too complicated, too many countries, uh, you can't trust them, too much confrontation, on and on and on and on. Um, well, what was, I think, the one determining factor between 2010 and 2015 was a change of attitude. Because um, I think it's very clear that if you and I say, well, you know, we're going to Um, run a marathon, but actually you think it's going to be impossible to run the marathon. You probably won't be able to run it. If you say, I'm going to run a marathon and you have a positive attitude toward it, you say, that's going to be difficult because I'm not in shape. I'm not eating right. I'm not taking the time to exercise and to train. I don't have a coach. Um, all of those difficulties are there, but I'm going to set my mind to it and I'm going to do everything that is necessary to be able to reach my target. Well, Once we had changed our attitude, and it first started actually not even with governments, it started first internally in the secretariat and with stakeholders, and then over time per, per also with government representatives to understand that actually we just couldn't afford to fail. Failure was not an option. We had to reach a global agreement and no one knew exactly how that would happen, but, uh, but we all knew that it had to happen. So we changed our mentality from uh, assuming that something was impossible to the determination of together we're going to make it possible. Today I speak to Dr. Jane Goodall, the world's leading primatologist. Dr. Goodall is not only an eminent scientist, she has also excelled as a conservationist and activist over the last eight decades. Now, you of course uh, have been active in, in, in Africa in in many years now, and seen for yourself also, I guess, uh, the consequences of climate change already there now. Can can you share with us some of uh, your experiences there? Well, I've actually, you know, I've seen climate change all over the world. That that was the advantage 
maybe disadvantaged, I'm not sure, but anyway, from traveling all over, which I was doing up until the pandemic. I've stood in Greenland with Inuit elders, looking up at that great ice sheet that goes up to the ice cap on top of the world. And it was late winter, but the water was pouring down. And the elders said to me, even in summer, the ice never used to melt here. And just the other day, I saw a photograph taken from that same place. And this ice cap has dropped. I forget the number of feet, but hugely dropped. Then it so happened that I went straight from Greenland to Panama. And there I met indigenous people who'd been forced to leave their island homes because at high tide, there was, there was flooding. And they could no longer live there. And then, you know, I've seen with my own eyes some of the results of the terrible droughts and the flooding. I've seen the results of some of these appalling typhoons and hurricanes and what it's done to people and the environment and the, the awful fires, the ones that raged across Australia, the ones that raged across um, Brazil. You know, when you see all these things and you realize in what short time this change, this change in weather pattern are unlike anything that, with the speed with which it's happened. What happens when the ice melts? What happens when the forests are no longer here? Today I talked to Catherine Richardson about the tipping points of climate change. What are the planetary boundaries and what can we do to prevent that we exceed them? When the IPCC, the UN Climate Panel, started talking about tipping points in 2001, they said, Mm, probably won't happen until we get to something like five degrees centigrade of warming. And then when their report in 2007, they said mm, maybe three degrees of warming. And in their most recent reports, they're saying mm, one to two degrees of warming. We may actually have crossed it's at least one of them. And it's a scientific discussion about whether we've discussed, whether we've crossed or not. And it's not science that we need to really focus on in this discussion, I think. It's the risk. It's the more understanding we have about how the Earth system works, the greater the risk we believe we're taking with all of this warming. And even, even if we meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, and, and let's be honest and say there's nothing right now that suggests we're going to. But even if we miss, if we, if we make those goals, there are five tipping points, the West Antarctic ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet, the um, sea ice, the Arctic sea ice, alpine glaciers, and coral reefs that we risk losing, even with a warming of only two degrees. In 2006, Nicholas Stern wrote a report that shocked people because it proved that if we didn't do anything to fight climate change, it would be extremely expensive for our societies and people would suffer immensely. Years later, he said, I got it all wrong. It's far, far worse. And I said, since this Stern review was published, uh, you were right. I said that I'd underestimated those risks I had because I was following the science of, you know, that was available in you know, the early years of this century. And the experience has uh, been worse and the science has got deeper and stronger in showing the risks. But there's something else has happened, which is as we've grown conscious of these risks, the uh, technologies for doing things differently have really advanced. 
And now we find, and that's another way in which I got it wrong, is the first thing is I underrated the, underestimated the risks. But the second way I got it wrong was to underestimate the speed of change of technology. But we did not predict, I don't think anybody else predicted either, in, uh, when the report was published in 2006, that now the cost of round-the-clock solar in many parts of the world is less than the cheapest fossil fuel electricity, even without a carbon price and without a subsidy. That is transformational. It's now much cheaper for those that are trying to advance their development to invest in renewables, even without the carbon price, even without taking into account the terrible pollution, air pollution and other pollution that comes from burning fossils. That's been extraordinary. Who would have thought in 2006 that all the major car companies would be talking about the end of the era of the internal combustion engine? So um, that is a transformational. And we've discovered, which we perhaps should have discovered earlier, that the electric uh, uh, powered vehicle is far more efficient and cheaper to produce when we go to scale than the internal combustion engine. You, know, you have radiators and an internal combustion engine car to throw away the heat. That's their, uh, that's, that's their purpose. Right? And so that transformation in technology has just been remarkable. But that technological advance, whether you look at generation of electricity, whether you look at transport, whether you look uh, at the management of systems, which we need to, has been quite extraordinary. So the world that we seek is actually in of the carbon-free world that we seek is really in our hands. And it's a question of, of moving quickly and managing that change in a decent and fair way. In today's podcast, I talked to Jeffrey Sachs, professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. We'll be talking about climate change and the COVID-19 crisis in the light of his new and very timely book, The Ages of Globalization. The fact of the matter is we are absolutely endangered globally And so we have to move fast. Danish companies are world leaders in offshore wind, for example, because they have been doing this first. They were first movers, and now they're reaping all of the learning that has been done. So when we put up a tender in Northeast U.S. for offshore wind, it was Danish companies that won the tender. And I think that this is a very important point for Europe. Take transport, for example. You know, the, the survival and thriving of Europe's automotive industry is vital for the European economy. But to survive and thrive means to go from the world's best internal combustion engines, which Germany has produced, to the world's best electric vehicles. That's a major transformation. Don't delay on that to be second best to China or second best to some other place get in front of it because it's going to have its own economic rewards. So pushing the timeline is not only a good example, it's both needed from a climate point of view, but it's smart economics as well because Europe becomes the front runner in the key clean technologies that the whole world is going to end up adopting. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Julio Friedman. Dr. Friedman is one of the world's leading experts on carbon removal, CO2 conversion and use, as well as carbon capture and sequestration. Is there a danger that if we spend too much money investing in these uh, technologies that, that will be able to help us 
in the future. We risk making the wrong investment decisions and we risk not focusing on things that we could just do here and now. Or, or how do you see it? So let's be clear. We just need to do a whole lot more of everything. The argument that you put forward is already a false statement that we can choose. You know, We should only focus on one thing that works and not the other thing. We already know we need all these things. The math is very compelling. <laughs> but the other thing is, um, I, I sort of, I keep coming back to this. There's no one way to lose weight. Like we just, there's so many things we have to do. And all of the technologies we use today face the same criticism 25 years ago. Offshore wind, solar, LEDs, batteries. Everyone was saying they're too expensive. They will never work. They can't possibly scale. And after a lot of investment, a lot of failures, a lot of false starts, a lot of lost businesses, we have succeeded. And, and in order to really turn the corner on climate change, in order to create a just transition to a green and verdant world, we're going to have to do that on every front. There's nothing we can ignore. The world is in the middle of an unprecedented crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit us all. And today I talked to former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry about the connection between COVID-19 and the climate issue. Uh, we have capacity to do an enormous amount. Uh, energy efficiency is the fastest way to reduce. And there are countless things we can do. That's the low-hanging fruit, if you will. And there are many, many things we could do to reduce uh, retrofitting buildings, changing the efficiency of certain kinds of equipment. Uh, we could move very rapidly uh, to uh, shift energy in certain sectors. Uh, transportation is a place we could make great gains. Every sector of our economy, we're going to have to break it down and, 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 and understand what can be gained at what pace. It has to be based on reality. Uh, but the truth is, saying that we can't do it because of COVID, uh, that's an excuse. I mean, if you're if you're really reacting to COVID, most of your companies won't be working right now, so they're already reduced. Uh, the truth is that that COVID is an opportunity in the money we spend for our economy to put people back to work. Let's make sure we're putting them back to work on the right things. Let's make sure we're not just going back to where we were. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.